I'll, I'll uh, Darian asked me to tell you a little bit about who I am, and then I'll tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, um, just outside of Baltimore, and I went to school, uh, college in Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. Nobody's ever heard of Shippensburg. It's a state university in Pennsylvania. That's where I became a Christian. I did not grow up in a, in a Christian home. Became a Christian in college, and then felt called to college ministry after I became a believer, and went to seminary uh, in St. Louis, and then um, I've been at the University of Missouri, uh, left there to start a new ministry at uh, Penn State University, was there for five years, left there to start a new ministry at the University of Minnesota, where my wife is from, the Twin Cities, and then left uh, there to go start UC Irvine um, here in July. So that's sort of what I've been done, and we're starting to do some things on campus now. Uh, we've got a Bible study on campus, about six students, um, and we're also starting a new Bible study with about, I'm not sure whether it'll be four to ten students, but all unbelievers. We're going to start having a meal and start thinking about spirituality. Um, so that's starting soon as well. A little bit about my family, um, trying to, maybe, maybe a story will be the best way to, to describe my family. Uh, so, you know, a year or two ago when Frozen um, was a big deal. So it was a big deal at my house because I have three girls, 10, 8, and 6 now. And so it was frozen all the time, 24-7. And uh, as we were processing about a, a new move, um, we were trying to think of a way to, to tell our girls uh, that we were about to move from Minnesota, which is really all that they've known, um, to California. And so I sat the girls down, and my wife, um, of course she knew what was coming, uh, but we sat down, and I said, girls, you know that, that uh, the Lord has made your mommy and daddy to start ministries. And my 10-year-old is, is uh, she's pretty bright, and so she said, wait a minute, are we moving? <laughs> and uh, I said, I said just, just let me finish, Garris. And uh, so she... She started crying, and uh, I don't want to move. You're going to tell us we're moving. And so she starts crying. So my wife looks at Karis, my 10-year-old, my sees her crying, and she begins to cry because she doesn't want to leave home. And so then my 6-year-old, um, she notices mom's crying and older sister's crying. So she starts to cry. So now three of the girls are crying, and then my, my middle child looks at all three, and me, she gets up, and then she starts to jump up and down. We're moving, we're moving. <laughs> uh, I haven't told them where we're moving, but she's very excited. That's, those are the personalities of, of, my, of my daughters. And so I said, well, do you, do you want to know where we're moving? <sighs> okay, tell us. I said, we're going to be just 20 minutes from the house of Anna and Elsa. <laughs> and they said, okay, we'll go. <laughs> so that's how we came. Um, and, uh, and so uh, they are, for the most part, enjoying California. Um, we come to this uh, passage, Matthew chapter 25. And, and I come to this passage with fear and trepidation. I mostly wanted to take this passage on because I've wondered about it for years. I've thought about it. Uh, I've actually never heard a sermon in church in my 20 years of being a Christian. And it's a bit unusual because it's in the New Testament, and the New Testament tends to get preached more than the Old Testament. And it's in the Gospels, and the Gospels in the New Testament tend to get preached more than the rest of the New Testament. 
and it's a direct teaching of Jesus. But it can be a bit confusing, and its subject matter, the Day of Judgment, tends to not get a lot of people excited. So we're going to be in this passage, um, and we're going to try to understand what Jesus is telling us. Let me pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you, thank you that your word is pure and that we need your word. We need to hear it. We need to be reminded of who you are and who we are. Lord, we need it to rain down upon us so that we can live life in a way that makes sense for us, that's pleasing to you. Uh, Lord, would you use this uh, this morning to encourage us and even convict us if necessary. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, uh, law officials discovered a man on a public bus in a country in Eastern Europe. And his name was Dr. Dragan Dabek. And he was sporting on the bus this full, thick beard. He had long hair that was pulled up and tied in a bun. And he was a New Age expert in alternative medicine. And he had his own business cards, his own website. Over the last decade, he had spoken to hundreds of people about this topic of New Age medicine. But this day on that bus, these law officials recognized something that no one had recognized for almost 15 years, that this man was not Dr. Dragan Dabik, but his name was Radovan Karatsik, the former Serb, uh, Bosnian Serb leader, president of the country, head of the army, who was now wanted by the United Nations for war crimes including an ethnic cleansing that killed all 8,000 Muslim men and boys over the age of 10 in the town of Srebrenica in, 19, in the early 1990s, some 20 years ago. And Radovan Kratzik, now 70 years old, thought that he was going to get away with all that he had done. No consequences, no judgment. But after some 21 years, Radovan Karadzic was convicted just about a month ago of the war crimes of genocide, extermination, and persecution. And his judgment day finally came. We like the idea of judgment for someone like Radovan Karadzic. We want justice. We demand justice. But the idea of justice for those who are not cold-blooded killers uh, is uncomfortable for us. A day of judgment for our first grade teacher that we liked. A day of judgment for a barista who knows our name and knows our order at the coffee shop. A day of judgment for our neighbor who brought brownies to us the week when we moved in. A day of judgment for your grandma. A day of judgment for you. All of this makes us uncomfortable. But Jesus talks plainly and regularly about the day of judgment. In over 40 verses in the Gospels, he talks about judgment. And this passage today is about the day of judgment. I would love to avoid thinking about the day of judgment, but Jesus keeps bringing it up. I want to look at four things from this passage on the day of judgment. Uh, one is, what does this passage teach us about the details of the Day of Judgment? Secondly, what does this passage teach us about the basis 
of judgment. Third, what does the judgment day teach us about the power and necessity of conversion? And the fourth thing, what does this passage teach us about how we should now live in light of the coming day of judgment? So we'll start first with who is the judge? Um, what do we learn about the day of judgment? So who is the judge on the day of judgment? Look at verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So the judge is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a kingly reference found in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. It's where Daniel has a vision where he sees one who is like a Son of Man, who comes before the Ancient of Days, who is God. And the Son of Man is given a kingdom, a kingdom that will never pass away, that will be composed of peoples and nations, and they will serve this king. Here in this passage, Jesus is coming to take the throne as the king. Jesus himself refers uh, to himself as 78 times as the son of man in the gospels. And Jesus is the judge. Often we think about Jesus as the one who brings grace. Uh, God the father is the one who brings justice. But Jesus will be our judge on that day. Well, who will Jesus judge? Uh, verse 32 to 33 says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So here it says that all nations will be judged by Jesus. So all people from every nation, from every tribe, of every language, all people who have ever lived will come before Jesus on the day of judgment. And it says here that Jesus will separate one from another. So all the nations are present, but it's not a national judgment. It will be an individual judgment. Well, what about this designation of sheep and goats? The idea of sheep and goats uh, being separated from one another is an idea that would be familiar to Jesus' audience. Often sheep and goats were kept together during the day by a shepherd. But then at night, a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats because the sheep who had thick coats would prefer the open air, but goats with the thin coats would prefer shelter. And so they would be separated from each other at night. Why do the sheep have a, get preferential treatment and, and the goats a negative, um, have a negative value? Well, sheep were considered more valuable because of their coats, goats less valuable because of their coats, and also being more obstinate. What about the designation of sheep to the right, goats to the left? Well, the right side culturally and historically has been the preferred side. So uh, the right side has been considered... Uh, clean, the left side defiled. Uh, most people are, tend to be right-handed. Uh, the left side usually is the weaker side. Um, still in cultures today, to offer your, your left hand to someone um, can be disgraceful. So we have sheep uh, to the right, goats to the left. Let's move to the more difficult question in this passage. Uh, what is the judgment of individuals based on, according to Matthew chapter 25. What will every, be, what will every person be judged for? Uh, what is Jesus looking for when he judges? Look at verses 41 to 43, and then we'll compare that to 40, we'll, we'll, for 34 to 36, then we'll compare it to 41 to 43. In verse 34, 
we have the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. A stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Now compare this to 41 to 43. Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. It seems here that Jesus is looking at what we have done with our lives as the basis of his judgment. Have we fed the hungry? Have we given drink to the thirsty? Have we welcomed and housed the stranger? Have we clothed the naked? Have we taken care of the sick? Have we visited the person who is in prison? Now certainly this list, list isn't meant to be exhaustive. But in other words, have you shown compassion to those who were hurting with a sacrifice to self? Notice what Jesus does not say here in this passage. He doesn't say you can enter my kingdom because of your baptism. It doesn't say you can enter my kingdom because of your profession of faith, because you were a member of a church. Jesus says the judgment is based on what you have done. So this is where this passage gets confusing uh, for us, and we feel the tension of this passage, because Jesus seems to teach you that the basis of our judgment is our good works. And this seemingly contradicts uh, the Bible, especially passages like we just read earlier in the service, passages like Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, For it is grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if we're saved by grace, not by works, then why is the judgment based on our works? We know that God's word does not contradict itself. So we probably begin to think, well, this passage must be out of context. Or this must be an anomaly in Scripture, this passage. I want to take a quick glance at some other passages about the day of judgment. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, about 10 chapters before this one, this is what Jesus says. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus, again, in Matthew chapter 7, he says a similar thing. He says, you will know them by their fruit. In other words, you will recognize them as Christians by what they do. Jesus, in John chapter 15, says, every branch that does not bear fruit, I will cut off. But every branch that does bear fruit, I will prune so that they can bear more fruits. How about the apostle John? Uh, in Revelation chapter 20, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. David, in Psalm 62, about God, says, You reward everyone according to what they have done. Well, what about the Apostle Paul who wrote Ephesians chapter 2? He says in 2 Corinthians 5, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
So we think, well, well, Paul, didn't you just say in Ephesians that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith? This not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not by works. And now you're telling us that the judgment is based upon what we've done? So it seems like there's a contradiction that we're saved by grace, and yet we're judged by works. But it's not a contradiction, because it speaks to the power and the necessity of conversion, which takes us to our third point. According to Jesus, Matthew chapter 25, the judgment is based on how we love others, meeting their needs of food, of shelter, of companionship. Now, we would expect the judgment of God to be based on whether we trust in Jesus. We would expect that the judgment of God would be based on whether we love Jesus or not. And it actually is. It is based on those things. This is why he uses this language of based on our works, or judgment of works. Because to trust in Jesus, to trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross by paying for our sins... To trust that Jesus has broken the power of sin and death through his resurrection will and must change us. Maybe you'll recognize this story. Uh, Dr. David Banner is a scientist. Was haunted by his wife's death because he was unable to save her when she was trapped in a car as as it lay burning there. After her death, Dr. Banner begins to hear and learn about stories of people who in great times of crisis were able to demonstrate superhuman strength to save someone um, who was about to perish. Through his research, he begins to hypothesize what gives people this superhuman strength in these times of crisis are these high levels of gamma radiation. So one night in a lab, he exposes himself to this, these high levels of gamma radiation. And from that point on, his life is forever changed. Whenever he begins to get upset, whenever, whenever Dr. Banner now sees a crisis, whenever he sees someone suffering or in pain, he turns into the Incredible Hawk. And he is able to save people in a way that he was not able to save them before, to care for people. For Christians, it's not gamma radiation that changes us, but we are changed at our conversion when we trust in Jesus. Because when we trust in Jesus, what that means is that we are trusting in another's good works for our salvation. When we trust in Jesus, we are believing that Jesus' good works, not our good works, His record of obedience, not our record of obedience, has been credited to our accounts. So when a person trusts in Jesus, they're converted, they're changed. Our status is changed in conversion. We are no longer an enemy of God, but now we are a child of God. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. Our interests begin to change in conversion. They change from our interest in ourselves to beginning to be interested in the things of the Lord beginning to be interested in other people, the things that matter to Jesus. And so God's salvation, it's doing more than just getting us into heaven, but God's salvation is transforming us, causing us to love the things that Jesus loves and to love the people that Jesus loves. So how is this transformation possible? 
Well, it's at the cross. At the cross, we understand what love really looks like. Jesus lays down his life for us. It's also his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus breaks the power of sin in our lives. That sin that holds us as a prisoner to ourselves where we can't get past ourselves. We're always consumed and only consumed by ourselves and our own needs begins to break through the power of the resurrection. We begin to be free to love and to care about someone other than ourselves. Thirdly, it's the Holy Spirit. When, when someone is converted, they are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God Himself living and dwelling in us. Ephesians 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our salvation. And so part of the Holy Spirit's work is to make us holy. And, and what holiness is, it's to be, to be set apart. Set apart from something and set apart for something. And so the Holy Spirit sets us apart from sin, especially self. Focus on self. And it sets us apart for love for God and love for others. And so part of the work in the Holy, of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is to help us to begin to love in a way we would never have been able to love before our conversion. We are changed by our conversion. So now you see, if you are a Christian, you must begin to love. It's in your nature now, as a believer in Christ. So if you are a Christian, you will show the evidence of a changed and a converted life. Let me go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me go verse by verse. There in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and also I'm going to add verse 10, the next verse. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The very next verse, verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you see, Paul is not saying... He's not saying that we are saved because of our good works, but that we've been saved by grace in order to do good works. I want to read a quote from John Piper talking about the judgment based on works and how we can understand this, this concept. He says, In the courtroom of the kingdom of God, all the world will be assembled before the righteous judge, and all will be guilty of a capital offense. Yet some will be acquitted, and others condemned. The deepest reason for the separation is that one group has been forgiven because of their identification with Christ through faith. The other group has not. In that courtroom, a witness will be called forth to testify to the reality of faith or its absence. And that witness is our deeds. Therefore, our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or absence of faith and it is not inconsistent for God to judge us according to our works. But we must understand that this judgment according to works does not mean we earn our salvation. Our deeds do not earn the exhibit our salvation. Our deeds are not the merit of our righteousness. They are the mark of our new life in Christ. So how then does this day of judgment how should we think about how to live now in light of it? Point four. Well, we need to understand who the brothers are in verse 40 that we are called to love in Matthew chapter 25. The king will answer them, Truly, 
I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus is talking about his brothers, a call to love brothers. And so how are we to understand the brothers here in verse 40? Um, are our brothers referring to our fellow humans? Every man or woman or child uh, who is in need, regardless of whether or not they are a Christian? Or are the brothers here in verse 40 our fellow Christians? Every man, woman, and child who loves Jesus and is in the family of God. Well, Jesus answered this, answers this question for us earlier in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, there's a story where Jesus is teaching. And Jesus' mom, Mary, and his brothers, through blood, are concerned about the things that Jesus is teaching. So they, they come to sort of bring Jesus out of this teaching moment. And so someone tells Jesus, Jesus... Your mother and brothers are standing outside. They want to talk to you. And so then Jesus replied, Well, who are my brothers and who is my mother? See, it's the very question that we're asking right now, Matthew 25. Pointing to his disciples, Jesus says, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so the answer to the question as to who are the brothers that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 25 that we are called to love, it's other Christians. I want to pause here before we get into some specific application because I don't want to miss what else verse 40 says. Verse 40, I'll read it one more time. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Often, as a Christian, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, how he has loved us, how he has died for us, we, we want to serve him, we want to love him. Jesus, how, how can I serve you? How can I love you? And he, and he tells us here how to do that. He says, when you care for one of my younger brothers or sisters, you're caring for me. When you show kindness to one of my siblings, you're showing kindness to me. If you want to love me, love one of my brothers or sisters. But in the same way, Jesus so identifies with us, the believer, that when we are hurting, he's hurting. When you feel alone, Jesus feels alone. When you are being persecuted because of your faith in Jesus, he is being persecuted. He identifies with the believer in a powerful way. And we see this in the book of Acts. Saul is persecuting the Christian. He is standing and approving of their death. He is throwing Christians into prison. And on the road to Damascus to do more harm to the Christian church, Jesus stops him in his tracks, blinds him, he falls down, and then Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Does he say my brothers and sisters? He says, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus identifies so with the Christian that when someone is struggling, when, when, when a brother or sister of Jesus is struggling, it breaks his heart. He feels it. He identifies with it. And when someone serves that person, it's like serving Jesus. It means the world to him. I want to highlight a couple other things about this passage. I want to think about what does it mean to love? Jesus is showing that the love that he requires of us is a love with action. A sacrificial love that will cost you time, 
that will cost you effort, that will cost you money. To feed the hungry and thirsty, it will cost you time, it will cost you money. To take care of the stranger is going to inconvenience you. To take care of someone who is sick is going to be exhausting. To go visit the Christian who is in prison will not be comfortable or easy. This, this will take effort. He's not, Jesus in this passage is not asking you to love with words. He's not asking for you to send kind thoughts. He's not even asking you to pray in this passage. He's asking us to act in the same way that he acted for us all the way to the cross, his death so that we might live. And this is why John in the letter of, uh, in 1 John can say in chapter 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You see, John is questioning the salvation of someone who professes to be a Christian. If they have material needs, but they don't care for their Christian brother or sister. Secondly, this means that there's a priority with who we love. Now certainly, and this is clear in Scripture, that God calls us to love all people. That He calls us to love our neighbor. To show mercy to the hurting, um, to those who are not believers. But our sacrificial love starts with Jesus' family first. His brothers and sisters. Let me get a little more practical even with this. Um, this elevates the importance of the local church. Um, there is something significant that's going here at Trinity with the relationships that you have with one another. It's probably more powerful than you understand, maybe even more important than you understand. This is a family that you are involved with. And this is where love begins. Now, love extends outside of these walls absolutely in a variety of ways. And we'll get there in a second. But, but, it, but it begins with family first here at Trinity. Uh, we're, we're very busy people. Um, do we have time in our schedules to love in the ways that Jesus is calling us to love? And if we don't, maybe that means that we need to clear an evening or a Saturday where we are freed up to, to practically meet needs, to love people, to serve people. Maybe that means that we need to begin to save some money a, a, a month, every month, so that we can put a little money aside so when a need arises with a brother or a sister, that we're ready to meet that need. Um, with money that we've been saving just for a need like that. Maybe if there are not a lot of needs here at Trinity, materially speaking, maybe that means that, that we partner with another church that's in an area where, where they, there is poverty. We come alongside other brothers and sisters. Maybe here in Orange County, maybe, maybe in another country. But we begin to want to somehow meet these needs knowing that when we love, materially, practically, sacrificially, other brothers and sisters, we're loving Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. The Day of Judgment teaches us that it's not enough to have a private faith. It's not enough for it to be just you and Jesus or me and Jesus. Um, it's not enough for someone to say, I love Jesus and yet, no bear, yet bear no fruit in their lives. Not that that fruit saves us, but it's the evidence of a converted and changed life. Jesus says, if you want to love me, you'll love my brothers and my sisters. 
Um, I'm wrapping up here now, and this is what I want to leave you with. Um, what this means uh, for, for Christians, for brothers and sisters also, is that everyone that you know will face Jesus and will stand before him and will have to give account for their lives. And that is too much for them to bear. They will not be able to stand underneath the weight of judgment. They need someone to take that judgment upon them. And only Jesus can do that. We need to point to people who do not know Christ. People like our barista, our neighbor who brought us brownies, our first grade teacher, our grandma. They need to know that they will be judged. But there's someone who loved them so much that he took their judgment upon himself so that they might not have to bear the weight of that judgment. And if you are here and if you're not a Christian, um, if you're not sure if you're a Christian, if maybe you're confused if you thought it was about being good or coming to church, you need to know that it's, it's all about Jesus. There's no other way to stand before the judgment of Jesus himself but to take and to be convinced and to trust in that he loved you so much that he took that on the cross for you. And this passage is about the love of Jesus. He's warning us that he is fair, that God is fair and judgment will be true. And yet he's telling us, but I loved you so much that I've given my life for you. And so that when that judgment comes, um, you can stand in confidence and full assurance, not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done for you. Let's pray.